The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife. Save the environment. Save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, and welcome to Our Wild World. Uh, this is Ellie Weiss with Wild Eyes Foundation. I'm the founder and president, chief cook and bottle washer. And you can find out more about Wild Eyes Foundation at www.wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot org. And today we have, uh, again, Dr. Uh, Dusty Becker joining us and her husband, uh, Dr. Tony Povolitis, who were on a couple of weeks ago talking about their project, uh, lifenetnature.org, and one of the projects that they're doing in Kenya. Uh, today we were hoping to bring in um, that project live from Kenya, but we're running into a few little technical difficulties, and this is sort of what we can discuss a little bit today and how difficult it is and um, to make things happen on the ground in what is oftentimes to us here in the U.S. something very simple and something we take for granted. Um, the technology that we have, such as Skype, that we're all working through today, um, is an incredible uh, piece of technology that connects everyone across the world in moments in real time. But if you don't have the education or the ability or the know-how or the equipment, then uh, this kind of technology is, is being lost where it really needs to happen, such as on the ground in Kenya. Um, so over the past few weeks, what we've been discussing is um, hopefully engaging our audience in learning just what it, make, what it takes to make conservation happen and the lateral collaborative efforts and ground knowledge that is necessary to make an impact, both on a community and state level, and that they is really us, and it is us who are making these coordinated efforts and working together. Uh, as an example, in order to survive after their mother has left them to their own devices, young cheetah brothers often form coalitions. They hunt together, live together, work and coordinate strategy together. Our human systems are not so very different. It is only through working together that a coordinated and goal-oriented plan that looks holistically at a challenge takes responsibility for the problem and goes about creating a solution by threading together multi-layered disciplines. So that's what we're doing here. Today we have Dr. Dusty Becker and Dr. Tony Polavitas of LifeNetNature.org. Um, that's their website. You can learn more about them and the variety of projects they, they work in. And we're going to discuss the, the Maasai uh, Moran's Youth 
Masai Moran, what, hello Dusty, hello Tony. Hey. Um, it's the Masai Moran's, uh, Youth Conservation Group and Walking Safaris. And, uh, we had hoped to have Anne Nimpayo Saruni and, um, Moran Karika and, um, Julius Njoyup, if I pronounce that correctly, joining us today. And we're going to try throughout the show, but, uh, we gave them, uh, the wrong time. So, that is a big glitch, and we've all learned something from this, so hopefully we will work this out and get them all back on at another time, because I think it's really worthwhile to hear from them. So um, Dusty's given me some information that will really help tremendously in moving a conversation like this forward, where that we can bring in people on the ground. Um, tell us a little bit, a little bit about the uh, Moran Group and uh, Anne and Julius and uh, Karika. Well, I'll, I'll start with Anne. Um, she comes from, like most of the, the young Maasai, comes from a, a family who herds cattle and um, used to be more mobile and, and now are more sedentary, staying, staying in one place um, and keeping lots of animals. She um, went, was a, uh, uh, fortunate girl in many ways um she she went to primary school and on to secondary school and did very well well enough that she has the grades to get her into any university in kenya but um, there are some financial barriers to her going on to university so she's not um, instantly accepted into the university but while she was in high school, she was a leader in her um, wildlife club and became very interested in wildlife and wildlife conservation because she lives right next to the Maasai Mara National Reserve where there you know, is a huge concentration of wildlife. And, of course, I'm sure she would have stories to tell of wildlife even coming up to her her family compound and just all kinds of experiences with wildlife that would be hard for those of us who live day to day in the United States or Europe to, to even imagine. But um, she sustained that interest in wildlife and um, found out about our project through Julius. Julius was the guy on the Last radio station that, that um, Tony and I, the last radio show that we were on with Ellie, we talked about meeting Julius. And Julius is a an older Maasai leader. I mean, he's relatively young for the community, but he's he's an older guy. Anne is only 20, um, 21, something like that, whereas Julius is in his 30s. And so Julius really has a lot of vision and concern about the younger people in his community. And he was the one who told Anne about meeting us and about our idea for um, working with them to to do whatever it is that they felt was appropriate in their community that would combine conservation of wildlife with their professional development with things that would be good for the community. Um, you're, break, you're breaking up just a little teeny bit, Dusty. Um, so I, I'd like to just inter, interject here. You've covered uh, some really, really important information, although it, it sounded like a very short paragraph of what you've talked about just now. You've covered about five to 
I'd say five to seven incredibly important points. Uh, the first one is girls' education, especially with Maasai. Uh, typically, the girls, it's the firstborn boy that will um, be the recipient of the largesse of a community or a family and what small funds there may be to go and continue school. Uh, here, we take school for granted so much that in our public school system that it's a given that any child, all children, boys or girls, will go to school. Well, in Kenya or in many places across sub-Saharan Africa, especially in wildlife-rich areas, um, not often do the girl children get a chance to go to school. So and making it through with very good grades through to high school and being accepted with those grades, which are very important to move on into the um, upper echelons of the school system, university, college, or specialized school, is a very, very big deal. And it's not free. And um, so a lot of what we we do in terms of being uh, foreign NGOs or NGOs that are trying to help on-the-ground conservation projects is to provide um, scholarship funding for uh, people who are have this kind of quality, have this uh, vitality and this desire, which is so important, and this aesthetic of wanting to work with wildlife or engage wildlife in their lives, that's a very, very big deal. And that's right there is, I'd say, the core of a lot of our projects, LifeNet Nature and Wild Eyes, is engendering this culture of enjoyment, this aesthetic to live, want to live with wildlife in um, a more positive way rather than just negative in conflict. Another important point you covered there was the wildlife clubs. We don't really have anything like that here, and the wildlife clubs of Kenya is huge. And when you can engage young people into that, you're once again getting a great start on engendering this uh, aesthetic of um, wanting to live with wildlife. And another point that you mentioned was the uh, family compound. Um, maybe you can uh, describe what the compound is like for a Maasai, uh, a, a little bit of how that works and how close and right next door wildlife really is. I'm not sure a lot of people who haven't been to Africa or seen a Maasai compound know what it's like. Can you give us a bit of a description? Well, I guess the first thing you need to do is imagine living in a small mud house and then right next to your house is something called a boma and it has a big round it's a round area about the size i don't know how big would you say a boma is say maybe um half a football field or less yeah and it's it's round with different entrances into it and at night, all of the cows and the goats and the sheep are brought into different parts of the boma. Sometimes they're all, if they're just all brought in there together. But um, the thorns, it's, it's, they're acacia thorny branches that are all woven together and big logs and big chunks of trees to make this huge fence around this area where the animals can be safe at night and the people and the people too right the and so what we're talking about safe so um what we need to imagine you did a great job here is look down um like you're look standing up our listeners and look down and see a huge not huge but a good sized 
thorny fenced in area, which inside this thorny fence, which is usually two to three feet thick of these thorny branches and has uh, two or three entrances, as Dusty had said, to bring in the livestock and um, keep the people safe. So what are we keeping them safe from? We're keeping them safe from lions and predators so that the livestock, the small stock, the sheep, goats, and cows have protection during the night. And the boma is another, another word for that would be like a corral. Not exactly like ours, but it's, it's, it functions similarly, um, similarly, excuse me. So, um, it's really important to understand that a Maasai community is made up of several bomas, um, together and the Maasai relationships between husbands and wives and children and extended families. They have to live in a very tight community. And um, where they are safe, and this is what we've been talking about also, uh, food security, social security, a community of neighbors and network of, of extended family, and their livestock. So it's a very different setup than we have here. And it's got to be a safe place. So this BOMA is incredibly important to the Maasai. Go yeah, ahead, Dusty. I'm sorry. The, the BOMAs that, um, you know, the people that we're working with have their, their BOMAs right next to the Maasai Mara National Reserve. So they have some very large visitors at night, leopards, lions, hyena, any, any night they're coming up and looking around to see if they can find something to eat. And domestic animals are particularly easy to eat. So in the past, there have been, uh, and there's still, there's still problems with um, the wild carnivores coming up and um, preying on some of the domestic livestock. But um, because of, there's a program that was started by Ann K. Taylor. She has a foundation that when the animals, um, if a, if a person, if a Maasai loses some of their livestock to a leopard, for example, she raises money to create a fence over the top of part of the BOMA so that the animals are even safer. So there are all kinds of ways of mitigating these problems. And um, but it takes a lot of work on the ground to to prevent a Maasai person from saying, oh, I'm so mad. I'm going to go out and kill the lion or I'm going to kill you know, the, the carnivore right now. And so um, those which, kind of on-the-ground programs. Yeah, which is, a, which is a big issue, which is exactly what we're dealing with. And I tried bringing on the uh, Maasai, the Kenyans again, and they're still not able to answer. So I think our glitch with the time uh, uh. created a problem with us. But, hey, we're going to have them on again. Um, uh, I would like to organize it so that we can do this maybe the week after next and we'll get the Maasai back on because I think it's really, really important that we hear from them. Um, a lot of people hear the Western perspective and, you know, the NGO perspective, yours perspective, my perspective of what we try to do when we're going in and working with people on the ground. But it's incredibly important and such an opportunity to hear from the people themselves. So um, we've talked a little bit about this BOMA, and you've mentioned some uh, other people, Ann Taylor, who's another good friend of mine. Uh, she's the daughter of uh, the Abercrombie and Kent family, and uh, she went into uh, anti-poaching and uh, conservation and working with the schools and the communities, and she's done an incredible job. So one of the things that we all need to think about and when we're working in a project uh, – 
on the ground in Kenya is what I was talking about before, coalitions and collaborations. We can't just keep reinventing the wheel. We all need to work together, and especially in the gem of the crown of Kenya, the Maasai Mara, um, which which is a stunning place, wildlife rich. Um, it has a little bit different regulation than, let's say, a national park. So I'd like to just do a little definition of what a national reserve is versus a national park. A reserve in Kenya, East Africa, is an area that has been set aside not only to protect wildlife, but also allows human uh, utilization. So you have people um, in an area working, uh, living their lives while also living with Wildlife, So it's a very different setup than a national park where people are kept out and a buffer zone is created. And this is what LifeNet Nature and the Maasai Moran Project is about, is creating a bit larger buffer zone um, on the outskirts or the, the boundaries of the Maasai Mara where the people are living. And this is where the conflict usually comes to a full head in the sense that you've got wildlife, predators, carnivores, and people, livestock, um, all living in one area. And how do we um, find a way to uh, work that together so that wildlife is not killed or poached? And um, the Maasai have a, a rather um, specific relationship to wildlife. Can you tell us anything about that, Tony or, or Dusty? Well, this is Tony. I'm delighted to be here this morning. Um, uh, you know, I, I'd just like to back up a moment and try to offer some perspective to our listeners here in the United States. Um, uh, a relatively small percentage of people live right next to our national parks, for example, Yellowstone. Uh, and uh, people who live with Yellowstone, next to Yellowstone, sort of face the same kinds of issues that, uh, that the Maasai face. Um, and that is that animals from, from the park or from the reserve circulate through a larger ecosystem. And they have to because uh, if if they don't have that larger ecosystem, their populations will dwindle. And we've seen that uh, in places like Yellowstone, and we're we're seeing it uh, in Kenya in the Maasai Mara Reserve, where uh, many of the more spectacular species of the reserve, the, the kinds of animals that tourists go to sea, have been declining very substantially in numbers over the past few decades. And uh, so the Maasai are aware of the fact that on their lands, wildlife are declining. Uh, for example, uh, Julius and Ben and Anne and a number of other young Maasai were taking on us on a on a walk, on a, on a walking safari. They were actually practicing a walking safari with us. And uh, we passed by a stream. And um, Julius, I believe, told me that there used to be striped hyena there. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, the stream was named after the hyena. But those animals are gone. Uh, and uh, other animals are gone from the National um, Reserve, such as the African wild dog. The fact is that the reserve itself cannot support uh, sustainable populations of wildlife. Those creatures require not only the reserve, 
but also the lands around the reserve. That's an excellent point. Yes. And so what we're trying to do is, is help the Maasai create that vision of, as you call it, a buffer zone that will help uh, the Maasai with uh, walking safaris and ecotourism, which will provide some income for the community, while at the same time allowing the animals to, uh, to sustain their populations over time. Um, this is the buffer zone concept is interesting, especially when and I so wish the Kenyans were here because it would be incredible to hear their input. So we are going to pick this up again with them because typically around a national park, you call it a buffer zone. Um, but it, around a reserve, um, I don't know that buffer zone is the best term. You've got people who have been traditionally living there for millennia, the Maasai. Um, it's their land. The Maasai Mara was previously their land before it was set aside as a reserve. So you've got an area here where um, it's a little different than our, our national park system, or maybe it's similar. You've got people really living, making their lives right outside this reserve. So they're no longer uh, allowed to um, uh, utilize fully within the reserve. That means... Uh, the Maasai have a, a, a special relationship with the, the Mara Reserve. A, it's run by the Maasai. It's run by two different county councils, the Transmara and the Narok councils. And um, they basically lay down the law of what happens. Kenya Wildlife Service is uh, only allowed to operate within the reserve through the um, uh, benefic- beneficence of the Maasai and these two councils. So around the Mara, as what Tony had said, is uh, the, the decline of wildlife is almost up to 80 to 90 percent within the Mara. I've seen the change over the last 20 years. So a lot of the Maasai, the younger Maasai especially, are coming along saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, you know, things have changed. We're not seeing the wildlife that we used to have here. And they totally understand that the benefit, the economic benefit is theirs to reap if they can get on board with uh, the whole tourist kind of thing, which used to be the purview of, I'm going to call it, um, external forces, the lodges uh, run by elsewhere. So the money would come into the lodge from a tourist and that money would go elsewhere. It never really trickled down into the Mara. So a lot of the conservancies, uh, which are setting up around the perimeter of the Mara Reserve, are getting very much on board with um, building lodges, finding ecotourism, such as what the Maasai Morans are doing. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about the walking safari. I've never done a walking safari in the Mara. And um, so it's it's critical for the Mara's existence and its future and its survival that the Maasai become involved in protecting it, that it's no longer the uh, purview of people of elsewhere, um, the lodges, the, the foreigners, whatever. But it requires a lot of help from people like Tony and Dusty to um, make a difference and help them access the the plans and the goals to be able to best function with their land. So tell us a little bit more about the uh, walking safari. We're going to be heading into a break here in about, I think, five minutes. But if you can get us started on um, what will you see on a walking safari? If someone wants to sign up and contact lifenetnature.org, where you can see um, the projects that Tony and Dusty are doing and uh, sign up for a walking safari and volunteer, what, what will happen? 
this is Tony again. Um, but, you know, a, a typical kind of idea. Yeah. Yes. Um, oh, first of all, I should say, I just want to back up a second and mention that, you know, Dusty and I uh, work uh, with volunteers from the United States, from Europe and other places. And those volunteers are really key to the project because they help to finance the effort. And without them, we just simply couldn't do this work. Uh, but getting to the walking safaris themselves, they're really actually quite exciting because most people who go to the uh, the reserves and national parks in East Africa uh, tour by vehicle. And that's, of course, exciting. But at the same time, you really don't get out and get a feel for the land. And uh, you don't really get out and walk with the wildlife, so to speak. And you certainly don't get out and have a chance to walk with dynamic and exciting uh, young people like the Maasai that we work with. Uh, yes. Go ahead. So I, and I'd just add to to paint the picture a little bit um, that the Maasai youth have decided to wear their traditional clothing when they lead lead the um, walking safaris. And so a lot of their clothing has these tiny, tiny bits of metal. And so as you walk along, there's there's this this delicate jingle <laughs> going on because of their clothing. But it seems that because the Maasai have lived with wildlife for so long, the animals are somewhat calmed by that sound. And so none of the animals um, run away from us. Um, and we can be in fairly large groups of people and the giraffe just stand there looking at us or the same with um, zebra will come upon huge groups of zebra and large um, gatherings of, of impala and the animals just look at you. Maybe once you get really close, you get towards, you know, 25 feet from them, they turn around and start to walk away from you. And some of, some of the animals are shyer than others. So the oribi, for example, um, will run away from you. But it's just amazing to see these animals on, on foot because if you're standing up in a Land Rover, a giraffe looks really tall, but when you're on foot, a giraffe looks. Um, this is great. I want to continue on with this visual a little bit. We're, um, we're going to head into a break now and, uh, we're going to come back and explore some of this visual because it's, it's really something and it's a very different kind of recreation than what we do here in the U.S. So we're going to head into a break and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. 
She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Hi there. For those of you who are just joining us or didn't catch the first part, we're talking with Dr. T- uh, Dusty Becker and Dr. Tony Povolitis of LifeNetNature.org. And we're talking about the Maasai Moran's uh, conservation group and walking safaris who operate uh, up on the Syria Plateau on uh, the boundary of the Maasai Mara Reserve. Um, we were heading, we've covered so much incredible information here, and I'm so thrilled to have Dusty and Tony with us, and we had hoped to bring in the Maasai Morans and several of the people on the ground in Kenya, but we're having a little technical glitch and haven't been able to do that, so we're going to bring them back in in a couple of weeks. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Tony and Dusty started talking about what happens on a walking safari with the uh, Maasai. And I'd like to point out just how different that is than, let's say, when we go on a hike in, a Yellow, in Yellowstone or one of our national parks or in our wilderness areas where we recreate and have a good time. A lot of that is about us and having a good time. What is um, so important about this experience of a walking safari in Africa is that we're able to learn a different way from the Maasai who have lived traditionally and culturally uh, for millennia in this kind of a habitat and environment and uh, the difference of how they walk through this landscape. Uh, Tony and Dusty, can you give us a bit more of an idea of the, the, the visuals and the sensation of being on foot with Maasai in a wildlife-rich area? Well, I'll just start with my recollections of the first experience I had. We we got up very early before it was light, and we had warm milky chai, um, which is the tea. The um, community where the neighbors where we were we were camping um, had about twelve cows, and they got up very early, milked the cows, made us some very milky tea. And then we got this combination of traditional Maasai and uh, Western-style naturalist adventurer going out to look at wildlife 
um, combination going on because we had spotting scopes and good binoculars and we had all the bird books and all the mammal guides. And we were with very well-educated young Maasai who had been to wildlife clubs. They knew a lot of stories about the animals um, from uh, their their school lessons, but also because of their direct experience. So there was just no end to the personal stories. And as we were walking along, for example, um, one of the guys bent down and picked up a handful of little tiny droppings and said, who knows what these are? And mm-hmm. of course, um, all of us foreigners didn't have a clue. We were looking at something that looked like little drops of licorice. And even though I'm a wild bio- wildlife biologist, all I could say, well, is I know it's an ungulate. I know it's a hooved mammal of some sort and a small one. And so we got an intimate, you know, a very first hand, first smell look at what animals were on the land. Um, and it turned out those were little droppings of a dick dick. And we could see where the territories were of the animals. Whereas when you're driving fast over the land in a, a Land Rover on a typical safari, you don't get that slow feel for the land. You don't, you're, you don't, you, you don't let it seep into you. We, we'd walk along and one, one of the young women Maasai would pull a piece of bark off the tree. And tell us that this is a bark that is used to reduce the pains of labor during childbirth. And we, you know, we'd stop and she would explain exactly how they make the tea. Um, when it's taken, we learned so much at a much more human speed, a much, you know, a, we were the, the wonderful feeling of it was, was this journey on foot where you're learning as you, you're learning like you would in a real Maasai community, in a real day-to-day life of, of the Maasai world. Um, I, like that, I like that term, human speed, because you bring up a, an interesting thing. Most safaris, as you said, and we know, are through the Land Rover. So you've got that constant engine noise, even if you're not traveling fast and you're bumbling around and looking for the big five, and you see this, oh, you see a baboon, it's like, oh, I want to see a lion, oh, I want to see an elephant, oh, there's a giraffe. But what you get, what I'm getting the sense of, and um, that you get to see what the animal community is about when you're on foot. It's not just about us, it's about, think doing on a walking safari would be such an incredible experience because you get the opportunity to see how wildlife lives with each other, irregardless of our presence. And I'd say that's one of the most incredible experiences that one could have working with Dusty and Tony and going on one of their walking safaris and with the Maasai is you get a whole new perspective. Yeah, I think uh, it's uh, really an exceptionally different kind of experience uh, and uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, a lot of times when you do go on a more conventional safari, you know, you do have a uh, a Kenyan driver, it may be a Maasai person, but it's really not the same. When you're out there and you're actually walking out along on the Maasai land, that's very different from driving in a vehicle on reserve land, even though the reserve is managed uh, by the Maasai at a higher level. Uh, but so many of our senses um, really come alive uh, when you're out there on foot. Uh, 
just um, for example, smells. Now, if you're in a Land Rover, you're more likely to smell the exhaust from the Land Rover than uh, than the uh, the scent of uh, of an acacia bush or flower. Uh, and uh, the Maasai are really great at pointing out uh, all the different kinds of flowers and the. And uh, and they'll they'll encourage you to uh, take a sniff. <laughs> it's so it's, it's really interesting. And then just just listening uh, and being able to hear uh, soft um, discussions of the Maasai as we move through the landscape. Uh, just hearing. Uh, animals. Oops, t- t- Tony, you're breaking up a little bit. I'm sorry. Um, uh, no, no, um, we seem to have some technical difficulties today, but I love what you're saying in the sense that. You get a much fuller experience when you step out of the car, um, whether it's here in the U.S. and in a national park and go for a hike, or um, there's another added dimension when you step out of the car and go for a walk in Africa because there's a whole different um, a variety, um, myriad uh, forms of wildlife, some of them which certainly pose a danger. And um, I would say our first Western uh, idea would be, oh, my goodness, is it safe? How do you know, how do you, what do you do with a lion? So being with the Maasai who live with this and take advantage of seeing fully, sensually with uh, all the things that are going on on your safari on foot is an incredible, incredible experience. And I would highly suggest that you contact Tony and Dusty and, um, you know, sign up for a walking safari and get this kind of an experience uh, firsthand because it's very different than driving in the car. Um, one of the things I want to talk about that you brought up earlier, Dusty, is um, Anne and uh, her grades and her ability and her desire, which I'd say is the most important, and that g- goes across all the Maasai that you're talking about, the youth and this group, and we will get to hear from them live and in person in a couple of weeks is um, the Koyaki Guiding School, you know, the difference of, let's say, African youth, Maasai youth who live around the reserve and their desire to um, learn more and share that experience with Westerners. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because well, it's, it's, it's unique. Yeah, um, I, I think it, it comes because of where they've grown up. They've grown up around tourists. Um, they're... Their whole childhood, they would have seen the vans going by with with the the tourists going down into the reserve. Many of their relatives, um, older brothers and sisters, cousins, you know, uncles, etc., have jobs either in the lodges or um, some are drivers for the different companies. And so, I would say as many as as twenty percent of the adults in our the community that we work with work in tourism. So it's been modeled to them. So it's not surprising that they grow up thinking, oh, this is a good, good job opportunity for me. And they have, you know, a more positive attitude towards wildlife if they've had a family member that has had a good job in wildlife. Whereas some of the families that are more remote, uh, and don't have those jobs and have only had negative interactions with wildlife may not be so positive. Um, I, I was surprised that all of the youth that we work with, and there, there are anywhere from 10 to 12 of them uh, with a core group of about eight, 
they all have extremely positive attitudes towards wildlife. And some have been to forestry school or, you know, the, uh, one year programs in ecotourism and wildlife management. But they just um, have not gotten full time jobs yet. And so this. Was, well, Oops, we're, we're losing you, Dusty. Um, you bring up some really important uh, points in, in that that um, relationship with wildlife and uh, what I'm hearing about this particular group and your project, uh, the Maasai Morans Conservation uh, Youth Group um, and the Maasai are actually taking it upon themselves to crusade and protect wildlife habitat. They understand it's their home and they also understand that it's their future. And they are, without the education, which you mentioned, they're all highly educated, and they're putting that education towards something that is realistic and within their lifestyle and when, within their ability to affect some change. And that is bring people, bring tourists to uh, an experience, an un- unparalleled experience in walking through the uh, area around the Maasai Mara. Uh, we've talked many times that the majority of wildlife does not live inside a reserve. It moves, and it moves outside the reserve. So having an experience to be with the people of that land and their history and their culture, similar to being with Native Americans. Um, I'm sure Tony would have some parallels to talk about there um, and, and get a whole different aspect and, and view of what it's like to live in Africa, not just float through the surface uh, as a tourist in a vehicle, but to actually get out, have your feet touch the ground, have your senses open up, uh, smelling uh, everything that there is to see and to be able to touch it and be able to learn about it in real time with Maasai uh, would be an incredible experience. Um, when, when is your next uh, walking safari going on? February 10th to February 24th. And are you still accepting uh, volunteers or uh, participants? We have room for one or two more people. Oh, wow. Wow, everybody. So if you want to get on this, um, now would be the time. And how often do you do these safaris in in the Maasai? Well, we're hoping to you know, ramp it up, but we're still at the training training level and everybody's still sorting sorting it out. So these volunteers are really helping create whatever whatever the the you know, the product will be. Um and when you say when you say training, what what training? Training the volunteers or training uh, the Maasai training? Training the Maasai, um, you know how how to to take care of foreign guests and their needs to be you know to be aware that they um, you know how far can they walk? Maybe sensing the different interests of different people, communicating with people because each each walking safari has has to be tailored to the group it's not like a, a, a driving safari because you can take people from all kinds of interests and in walks and you're zipping around so much that you can uh you know you don't have to worry about them being too tired or not in good shape and so um with a walking safari it's different you have to really think about your um your visitors and you know how how to set the pace for different groups and some people are very keen on birding others might be just happy learning more about the culture and native plants seeing the people more 
Um, so we're we're working on all the different flavors um, of walking safaris. And so that that brings up an interesting point. What is it that you and Tony and LifeNet Nature um, does in organizing and let's call it filtering or vetting your participants? Do you have um, an understanding expectations of your par- participants? Do you have a system that you go through? Is it um, are people limited? What What are the kinds of things that you request of your participants in terms of preparedness or uh, skill sets or experience? Well, since this is a, a pro, you know a work in progress, uh, there are some fundamental logistical things that need to be worked out, and it's coming along, but we've got a way to go. And that is, you know, imagine uh, setting up a series of bush camps and being sure that you have water, you have food. You have tea, uh, you have a shower at each of these uh, distinct bush camps right. as you move along. Uh, you Absolutely. Know, these Absolutely. are the basics that, uh, that tourists need and expect. Uh, so, so we're working with the Maasai to be sure that they have a sterling program so that when people come, they'll feel that not only are they seeing some really magnificent wildlife and have that kind of experience we just talked about, but they're also – you know, having their basic uh, needs and comfort needs uh, met. So, uh, so we're, we're in that stage. So the volunteers that are coming with us in February are going to continue uh, that process of refining uh, the walking safaris. So, so right now, right now you're looking for some pretty hardy people that yeah. are looking for an, an adventure and experience, but can also, <coughs> excuse me, rough it a little bit. Oh, and understand that not every five-star comfort need is going to be met, which is the fun of going on safari in Africa, especially oh. a walking safari. Yeah, it's an exceptional opportunity. And, and as part of this, we're also doing wildlife counts. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion among our team about actually inviting uh, tourists to participate in the wildlife counts on foot which adds an extra dimension, a really positive dimension, that not only are they enjoying the wildlife, interacting with the Maasai, but they're also contributing to some scientific research. And how do you do a wildlife count with um, a volunteer participants? Well, uh, we have set up a series of uh, transects, uh, you know, using GPS locations as starting and, en- and ending points. And uh, we, uh, you know, we have a, basically a protocol that we're developing. Uh, for example, we want to make sure that we get the counts done uh, for each set uh, between 7 a.m. in the morning, just after sunrise, and 10 o'clock. So we have some consistency over time. And we also want to be able to repeat these during different seasons. So, uh, you know, so we're still, de- we're still in the process of developing a good uh, wildlife count program. Uh, and uh, we invite uh, people who are interested in this kind of thing, of course, to join and to volunteer for uh, the Walking Safari and Conservation Program. So this would be a great opportunity for young um, free Western or international um, wildlife biologists, zoologists, um, anybody in the animal field uh, or even tourism and uh, um, environmental to participate on the ground and get some real world experience, wouldn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, you don't even have to be a wildlife biologist by career or ending your career to be a wildlife biologist. 
if you enjoy watching birds or if you, you know, in your daily life, I hope everybody does this, enjoys the wildlife they meet on a day-to-day basis. And if you like to walk, oh, well, this is this is for you. Well, that's what this show is about, is getting people involved in our wild world and finding parallels between Africa, where we all have chosen to work, and the U.S. So um, sometimes it takes a little spark of an experience, uh, a unique experience, such as a walking safari with Maasai and a growing project, such as uh, working with LifeNet Nature during this stage of an on-the-ground startup. It's not startup startup but it's um getting to the point where it's growing it's a it would be an incredibly unique experience to participate on at this level at this stage with LifeNet nature and the maasai and you could get an incredible um first-hand understanding of what it takes to not only start and create a community-based conservation organization with willing people uh unlike a lot of conservation of where they're going in and they're having to fight or uh, jump over the first hurdle of getting this desire and this this aesthetic of wanting to live with wildlife. You guys have got that covered. You were con- uh, contacted by a group of people who already had this desire, and they just needed help uh, and the experience of uh, an NGO that could bring in uh, a little more access and oh, a wider worldview. So I would suggest contacting lifenetnature.org and um, t- contacting uh, Dr. Dusty Becker and Dr. Tony Povalidis and finding out more about this project. And you can certainly contact Wild Eyes at wildeyes at wildeyes.org or visit our website and learn more about us. Follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, follow us on LinkedIn. We have several discussions going on. You're, you're more than welcome, our listeners, that is, and our, our guests to um, continue this discussion on any of those Internet formats. And uh, we hope to, in a couple of weeks, have our Maasai here on the show with uh, Dusty and Tony to speak for themselves because that's a critical aspect of what uh, we're trying to get across and open up and open eyes and a view to uh, other ways of doing things in a different kind of a habitat in a very different environment. Um, Is is there anything else you'd like to um, highlight right now? We have about four minutes till close. Well, I'd just like to to echo what you're saying and um, you know encourage people to join and don't you know don't feel like you have to be a wildlife biologist to help. We've had um, we need people who know how to start and run small businesses, um, people who are interested in ecotourism and the whole strategy and design of running running a walking safari in terms of setting up menus for the for the different camps and helping people decide what kind of jobs and what kind of roles they want to play um we're being we're very open in terms of our structure (laughs) so so you've got opportunities here for people to participate in um helping create a project on a variety of levels you mentioned cooking you've got room for somebody who loves to cook and would like to face a challenge of doing cooking and uh, creating a menu on the ground for eight to twelve people with maasai you've got people who um let's 
environmentally friendly, how to make this camp the best and the greenest and leave a light footprint behind. You've got pe- uh, opportunities for people to do wildlife counts, which um, contributes to uh, important data of understanding how wildlife and what wildlife moves through this ecosystem. And you've got opportunities for people to have an adventure uh, outside of the typical lifestyle here in the U.S., even if they enjoy walking in our wilderness areas or our national parks. You've got uh, something that adds a whole new dimension to that. Um, so LifeNet Nature is an incredible project. I really would like our listeners to check them out at lifenetnature.org and learn more about the projects. They've, they work not only in Kenya. They've worked in, I believe, Chile? Yep. Yes. And, 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 um, Ecuador. what are some of the other, Ecuador. So, uh, Dusty and Tony are highly, highly, uh, involved, educated, uh, intelligent, incredible people that, um, have an, a lot to offer toward conservation in a variety of areas, not only, uh, in the other countries that they work in, in Africa, but here. So I suggest you get in touch with them. They're amazing people and they're providing an amazing opportunity. So please check them out. That's lifenetnature.org, L-I-F-E-N-E-T dot uh, lifenetnature, N-A-T-U-R-E dot org. Um, or you can contact, uh, me at wildeyes at wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That probably sounded very confusing. W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot org. And, um, please tune in with us in a couple of weeks and stay on top of what's going on the show because we are going to get the, uh, Maasai Moran Youth Conservation and Walking Safari Group technologically connected with us via Skype and live streaming in from Kenya. So, uh, we're about to close here and, um, I'd just like to thank Tony and Dusty, uh, very much for being on the show again and I look forward to having you back. Well, thank you very much, Ellie, too. We really enjoyed being on the show again. Well, thank you. And it's, it's, I'm sorry, Tony. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, You're you welcome. Great, you have a great uh, program. You have a great organization and uh, we just love this radio show. Well, great. Well, I'd love to have you back because you guys are exciting and it's fun to learn about what it takes to make conservation happen on the ground um, and make it real in the sense that it's not they of somebody else doing it. It is us. It is we working together uh, in collaborative and coalition efforts to learn how to live with wildlife from people who do live with it every day. And not just as a, a recreation or a sport, but as a lifestyle. So uh, thank you for tuning in to Our Wild World. I'd like you today to step out, put your feet on the grass, hug a tree. Just take a look at what's going on in Our Wild World, and we'll talk to you next week. And if you have any comments, please, please be sure to contact us. And uh, we look forward to carrying on this discussion. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.